Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces who challenge the unconventional in the quest for creativity, humanity, innovation, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey where we celebrate experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms, from the inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe. This is Neurons to Nirvana. I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunity to share with you today's podcast featuring Ike Stubblefield. We lost one of the most diverse musicians this year on June 20th. Ike was a master of the Hammond B3 organ and driving force in the Atlanta music scene. The number of artists Ike performed with is mind-blowing. Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, The Four Tops, Eric Clapton, B.B. King, The Temptations, Quincy Jones, Rod Stewart, Jerry Garcia, Greg Allman, Colonel Bruce Hampton, Derek Trucks, Jimmy Herring, Warren Haynes, and the list goes on. Before the pandemic, I had the rare opportunity to sit down with Ike and discuss his amazing career. Join me in celebrating the life of Ike Stubblefield, who was both a great musician and friend with this never-before-released interview. So I first saw you, Ike, personally in 2013 when you came out and played with Widespread Panic at uh, UNO Lakefront during their Halloween run. And you came out and played Stop Breaking Down, which is an, obviously a Robert Johnson old blues song to in right into Life During Wartime, which is completely opposite form of music. And the I bring that up because I think uh, that's an epitome that sort of epitomizes how your career and the types of genres of, of music that you've been involved with. Would you not agree that you've... Well, yeah, I've been at it quite a while, and it's it's all about ingredients to me and, and uh, like cooking. <laughs> I use that a lot. Right. And in most cases, I probably haven't heard any of the material before. You know, learn it as I go. Well, the process is like, don't play. It's what you don't play. Right. Which is what's important. Like you said, I've been at it for a long time. So all kinds of genres of music. So it's always fun and a challenge to be aware of what's going on around you and be a part of it at the same time. So it's, it's always fun. So we're here at your home studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> and regarding the jam band scene, tell us sort of how that came about when, I guess you had stated right when you, you moved here, correct? Well, uh, I moved here the last part of 1999 and went right to work at a place called the Cafe 290 in, in Sandy Springs. And had a once a month thing there with the organ trio. And within the First couple of weeks, uh, Jeff Sipe actually uh, popped in and sat in and played. Of course, we clicked straight away, and major magic happened. Right. <laughs> actually, the next time he came out, brought Kalambutu with him. Uh, of course, that was magical as well. And then I think Colonel Bruce was playing over at the Roxy in Buckhead uh, doing a show. So Jeff wanted me to, to meet uh, Bruce. So I met them over there with their sound check. As soon as I walked up to Bruce, we both said at the same time, God. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that kind of started, it was, it was like I've known Bruce all my life. <laughs> right. 
But uh, he was trying to guess my birthday and all this, and he didn't get one thing right. <laughs> and he was a little shocked at that. And I said, well, you know, and he, he did the same thing at the same time. We were going, we're from the same planet. <laughs> yeah, well, my personal opinion from seeing him on stage and coming across him and meeting him briefly once is he's, I don't think he's from this planet. He was such an extraordinary uh, individual, his stage presence. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ability and and all the musicians that he he brought together over the years. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Oh, yeah, Extensive list of just really talented artists. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeff Seip once said to me, uh, if you get fired from Bruce Hampton, then you know you made it. If you get fired, <laughs> yeah. uh, meaning basically he, he would take people in and a musician town that the name names go on and on all the people he's, he's uh, helped get focused. And I think that he felt like he was ready for the next person, you know, when he knew that you you had it, you got right. it, you got it. Or, you know, just in general, developing your own talent and, and, and uh, knowing how to be creative. And it's also the business side of being on time and little things like that. So he, he really gave a lot of uh, positive energy on being free to be creative. And once he felt you had that, then he let, you know, let you go. <laughs> right. Moved on. Moved, moved on. Yeah. Mentored another. And, you know, I'm basically the same, uh, but in a different way. Because, uh, you know, I'm, we both come from a old school sort of uh, concept of knowing how to work together and and, uh, and some people just don't get that naturally I mean this business is not for everybody sure you know a lot of people enjoy it and they want to get into it but it's just like any other professional job or creating a product mm-hmm. you know uh, it takes a lot of work and, and integrity and stuff like that that's attached to it and a lot of people just think it's a you know, fun party. You know, if you have a drink of Jack Daniels in your office job, you wouldn't be there very long. No, typically not unless it's <laughs> right. so, the era, era of the 50s or something. Right. But in any event, it's uh, Bruce was really good with creating, putting real good talent together. Yeah. So what was his work, speaking of his work ethic, what was his work ethic like, so to speak? I don't think he really had one. Right. <laughs> I didn't was, think so. It was whatever, you know. He just, it was it, all whatever felt. It, yeah, it, adapt to whatever situation, which is like, that's why we got along so well, because I did the same thing, basically. Every every song's going to be different. And uh, he liked being outside the box, just like I do. Yep. You can't really explain things like that. Right. <laughs> because everything's going to be different. No such thing as uh, a set rule, right? You know? And I think that's what he was really good at with musicians, younger musicians, musicians in general. Actually, you know, uh, he got excited because it was something outside the box. Uh, was he like that behind the scenes, backstage, one on one? Would he say those colorful comments throughout his conversation and uh, uh, sound bites, so to speak? He was just Bruce, you, right? You, never, you know. Uh, I mean, there was knowledge about everything he said, and you know, very galactic intellect. Right. So it's, you know, you, you can't really explain. You know, uh, if you could, then it'd be normal. Yeah. And it certainly was not normal. 
And when uh, you obviously had told me that you were there for his 70th birthday celebration, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was there uh, all day that day and performed with everybody that was there. And we were doing the, the encore set was about to start and we <clears throat> were doing the after party at Terminal West. Right. So uh, uh, basically during the whole sh show at the Fox, <clears throat> I noticed Bruce was not, uh, he was overheating and looked like he was out of breath and a little tired. And, and the place was packed with friends and family and, and musicians. And he turned to me and said, you know, I can't top this. <laughs> I said, oh, I used to call him B. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I said, well, B, you need some water or, you know, just because you're supposed to come up on the next song, you know, you don't have to, you're not feeling well. You know, he was sweating and stuff like that. And getting toward the encore set, I, I said, B, I'm not going to, I better get over to the Terminal West because folks are already coming in over there. And uh, I want to make sure everything starts on time there and I'll see you over there. And... He basically said, uh, good, because I, I don't want you here on this last set anyway. He did say that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, we were really close. Right. So we had our own communication thing. Sure. <laughs> so I basically said, okay, I'll see you over there. And I uh, got over to Terminal West, and basically uh, the band was just getting a little sound check, and the doors were open, uh, people coming in. Uh, and we played the first song. I had my phone set up on the organ. I had it on so I could get uh, updates. But I was going, something's not quite right here. And after the third song, I looked down at my phone. I see a text from Warren Haynes. And he said, Bruce fell on stage. We're not sure what's going on. I'll let you know. And, of course, I walked off stage and kind of looked at it and tried to text him back. And I didn't get a response. So I played the next song. Then I looked down on my phone. It was from uh, Derek Truck's manager, oh, wow. uh, Blake, and uh, said Bruce is gone. And so I basically went back up. Didn't tell anybody what was going on, and because once he did that, everything would have been over. Sure. So we did what we were supposed to do: was just keep playing. Eventually, I looked out in the audience, and everybody was getting their phones out and, and getting texts right. right. And then I just said, "Okay, well." Thanks for coming out. Well, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back. That sort of thing. And then I told the band. And of course, nobody believed it. Even though Ike's surrender to his battle with cancer was not as unexpected as the passing of Colonel Bruce, it was still heartbreaking for Ike's family and friends. I was at Ike's house the day he passed away. While his family and friends were reaching out to fellow musicians and others close to Ike, I struggled to face the reality that Ike was no longer with us and had played his last note. As I now listen to Ike speak about Bruce, it is comforting to hear his connection and their friendship continue in the afterlife. Here, Ike continues to show how his friendship with Bruce transcended our traditional definitions of both life and death. Well, for, well, for me, he's, Bruce is not gone. I talked to him oh, yeah. the other day. <laughs> <laughs> he still reaches out to you? Is that... uh, and vice versa, yeah. Yeah, we had that connection. Yeah, I mean, I've I heard he's has that type of spirituality or, or being, so to speak, always present. And, you know, when I first met Bruce, we, we, I joined the co-talkers for about a, almost a year. I think Bruce was living in Pensacola then, and that was with uh, Bobby Lee Rogers and, and uh, Ted. 
Vicchio and drummer moved to Nashville. Uh, uh, and during that time, we, we played a lot of festivals. Bachelor Clemens yeah. uh, sat down with Bluegrass. And we played with Jerry Garcia and All in the Way. Right. Uh, who else was on some of those? Uh, Jeff Mosier played with him <clears throat> quite a bit. But I met all these people through Bruce and Jeff Side. Right. So, so <clears throat> the jam band scene was the jam band scene was pretty open arms to me. Then it started going down to New Orleans quite a bit. Right. And it's a whole different scene there with uh, Galactic and all those folks. And, Have you uh, played with them before? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Did Jam Cruise a couple times. The last thing I wanted to ask about. The Colonel, Colonel Bruce Hampton, is uh, a lot of people think that he knew that he was going to, you know, that was going to be his last hurrah, so to speak. Did you ever get that sense of that? Well, no, because like I said, he still lives on with me. So, of course. Uh, <clears throat> but he, he was giving me some signs that, I mean, I, I talked to him every other day, you know, for years. Right. I was saying, Bruce, you need to slow down a little bit, which, you know, uh, we all do that when we're working. Like, we just, you know, the show must go on sort of thing. And he, Bruce, I'm 66. I think Bruce was, he just turned 70 then, right? Yep. And I was 65. So <clears throat> so I know what it feels like for me <laughs> <laughs> when when uh, you're touring a lot. And that's why I don't tour a lot as well. Right. I right. <clears throat> got all my licks in. Late sixties and seventies. I'm uh, sure it took a toll, <clears throat> or it was very but, grueling. Well, yeah, it was a little easier then because I was younger. But I also, at a young age, learned how to be creative in different, you know, stuff like film scores and putting songs in movies and go around the globe speaking at universities about you know music and handing B three organs and. Things like that. So I really never enjoyed playing out live, even as a kid. Really? Because uh, it, why? I don't know. It was just one of those things that it was natural for me to play. Uh, that's why when people see me, I'm not like jumping. All, I'm not <laughs> all that excited to be. You know, uh, I don't look like I'm a performer. Right. Yeah. You know, I just focus into you do your to thing, my, you're in my, the zone, my you're zone, focused. Yeah. And I'm totally focused. Right. I mean, I don't have you to. You don't look out at the I, stage. I or? don't look at the musicians because I can feel them. Oh, wow. It's yeah. all intuitive. Yeah. Unless they need help with a cue or something like that. Right. Because I can feel that as well. Yeah. You know, my whole thing is like shapes and colors. I don't know any chords. Uh, C major chord. I don't know where it is unless I. So hear you it. don't know how to read music? I uh, totally not. I never did. And actually, I teach that with music uh, ear training. Uh, a lot of cats come to me and girls come to me uh, wanting to get outside the box and just playing the same scale. Sure. Playing, uh, in most cases, it's the fear factor of making mistakes or or being in a comfort zone. Right. You know, because you're thinking. And music's not about thinking, it's about feel. And there's no right way to do it or wrong way. Yeah, everybody's going to feel differently. They're going to sound differently, right? But when you think, like reading, anybody can learn how to read music. Sure, they play exactly what they read, and if you can can put the feeling in, and some can't, but the feeling of those notes all have their natural feel to it. 
playing it softer or this and that, but it's everybody's feel is going to be different. Yeah, so going to your point, you don't need to look out at the crowd. Like You can stay hyper-focused and still have a sense of well, what's going to go on with the other yeah, I kind of sense folks the, on stage the, playing with you. The, I can sense the audience side of what's working. Right. And, and how to, you know, kind of make it fun. Yeah, I don't put, put that much energy into uh, trying to do one thing or another. It, uh, it's just a matter of... Uh, <laughs> right and and uh you know you, you can't try to please anybody you know uh, but you know that's impossible but you know if it feels if it has a feel to it that people can relate to they'll, they'll, they'll relate to it that's generally you know, when it <laughs> works or best i mean I, i've played a song or or show and very little response of like dancing or facial expressions sure. or you know when I do you know and at the end of, end of that they like tons of like wow you know? yeah but that's all you know it's that's kind of the basis of, of, of what I said about I, when I first started it's kind of um, I always had to go to the bathroom when I was on stage I'd go twenty times <laughs> really <laughs> and was it then, nerves or why why do you think that was the case. Well, I don't think it was nerves. It was just that I didn't want, I was always so focused on, on my parts without thinking. I mean, that, this is, you know, nothing has anything to do with thinking for sure. me. It's, it's, it's just adapting to the, the feel of what I'm not supposed to play. I don't, want, don't hear that I should be playing or doesn't need something. Right. Uh, you know, and this is when I first started back in the day. Uh, but I mean, I got that whole science down now, so it's I can go right on stage with just about anybody. It doesn't matter what style of music and know what not to do and learn the, the color and shape. One of the bands that you've played a lot with, Government Mule. You know, there's not a lot of dancing per se there, but oh no, that's one of my best bands. But I, that's I really one of my enjoy. favorite bands. <laughs> one of yeah. my favorite bands as well. Don't get me wrong about, you know, audiences not responding. And, yeah, I mean, they're always dancing. You know. Right. You don't have to, to move to dance. You know, playing with those guys. I mean, everybody's there to see those guys. Yeah. But when I do a guest spot with them, it, it, uh, I'm one of those guys because that's what I'm hearing. Right. You know? Don't know any titles. <laughs> it's, fun. <laughs> it's funny. uh you know, I get my marching orders from like Warren, and he say, "Well, why don't you come up on the encore song? I want you to come on on this song." And he even knows now that he doesn't even tell me the name of the song. He does not tell you. No, because I don't. I put my fingers in my ear. Okay, because I, I don't, don't want to know. I can tell you the last time I saw you. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas, where I live now. Uh, when you came on stage at the Moody Theater, I can tell you what you played. You played, I believe, to my soul, Ray Charles. Stratus, uh, Jesus Just Left Chicago, ZZ Top, of course, and Get Behind the Mule, Tom Waits, which are all totally kind of different types of songs in a, in a way. Uh, well, the, for me, they're just totally different shapes and colors. So you don't, I mean, for you personally, it really didn't matter. Like, you could just, you don't need to know what the song is. That's amazing to me personally.
who were some of your main influences growing up in regards to music? I listened to a lot of classical stuff as a infant, a lot of big band jazz, because my mom was a, used to be a trumpet player in a big band in Chicago. Right. A lot of Beethoven and Bach, and choral music, stuff like that. Jazz. Motown was right next to us, so in Toledo, Detroit's not uh, like an hour away. You know, I, I think that's probably why I kind of enjoy listening to all kinds of music. Right. You know, because I was brought up around it. And, you know, I would, even in classical music, I would always hear something different the second time I listened to it and the third time, for, you know, every time I heard something, I, I created uh, a feel of structure, of patterns. It was like a game to me to just basically just kind of organize it in my head what's what's coming next or uh yeah the, the whole structure of it right and i was able to duplicate it pretty easily naturally just like when my older sister had her piano lesson she was doing pretty good she was at a pretty good level where she's playing uh, from, uh, beethoven and things like that and i just when she was done i crawl up and play her lesson without even looking at the keyboard really yeah uh, so it was for me. It was like you know, kind of teasing her. Well, it was like four, or three or four. So, and my folks kind of saw my, especially my, my mom. She saw that I had a, a natural thing for structure and hearing stuff. And that was at three years old. Yeah. Wow. <clears throat> so my mom sent me to a, a music conservatory to try to learn read. Mm -hmm. And being a kid, I was kind of being a kid. I just tricked the teacher into playing it <laughs> and then sit down and play it like I was looking at the music, but still playing it slow like I was learning it by reading. All right. And then she'd turn her head and I'd just play it and, <laughs> and turn my head. And, Feel like uh, you're tricking her? It, yeah. I was, doing a little it, prank? And, yeah. And I, you know, I was just a you know, kid. So I, sure. So I basically, <laughs> basically just went back to my mom and said, look, I don't want you to spend your money on this. You know, I'm, you know, my mom knew exactly what I was doing. Oh, yeah? Yeah, she just wanted me to see if I was going to have her stop paying for it. Oh, wow. Was, yeah. So yeah. what did she say to you when she finally figured it out? Well, she always figured it out. She just right. wanted to, I think it was more of an honesty thing. Okay. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> So I said, yeah, this is, you know, not working for me. And my dad had a major, major construction company. And <clears throat> so being two boys out of seven kids, two sets of twins, uh, five girls, two boys, and I'm the older of the twin boys. So uh, my dad kind of, <clears throat> and I was like Stubblefield Jr., really. Uh, he was thinking I would be taking over the family business at some point. Oh, wow. So he's trying to get me out there to... <laughs> Basically, uh, learn the trade. Learn the trade, <laughs> and uh, fortunately, he had a pretty, pretty big staff with him and stuff. So whatever he told me to do, like you know, fill that wheelbarrow or, or do that, dig this or whatever, I just turn around and tell uh, one of the workers that my dad said, "Do that, do that, do this, right. do that," because uh, I had a brick hit my finger one time, and I said, eh, "Wrong, eh, that's not gonna yeah, work. I'm not gonna do this." <clears throat> not gonna work. And, and my dad figured it out too. And, uh, I said, "Just you know, go sit in the truck. Uh, you won't come in. Yeah, you know, come out anymore." <laughs> right. 
And then I got my first B3 organ when I was 12. And it's a whole story about that scenario because uh, I was already playing in church when I was, I was 10 and playing drums. Actually, I went on the road my first time was playing drums. Really? Some of my cousins, Paul Stubblefield and, and James. And uh, so I played drums for about five months with that. And my dad was like, uh, no, you're too young to be out here doing this. And, <laughs> da, 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 da. and so uh, after playing in church and then going up with Prince in Detroit and seeing uh, this place called uh, Baker's Keyboard Lounge and Jimmy Smith, Jack McDuff, all the or- major organ players right. at that time, uh, Groove Holmes, da, 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 or, or, you know, uh, I already kind of knew some of the musicians up there from, from family and friends and stuff like that. And, yeah, of course, my cousin Clyde Stubblefield, original drummer with James Brown, he kind of pointed me in the right direction. I basically knew that I needed to be three. So uh, I'm coming from a big family, like I said, five girls and two boys. I wanted one for Christmas. And this was like in, it was in April when I started pushing for one. Or making requests. Uh, yeah, and because my birthday is June 7th, so I, I kind of mentioned it going into that, and he said, there's no way we're going to spend that kind of money on just you when we got, you know. So did you start picking a parent? Like, would you go to your mom on the side and say, uh, please, well, please, please? I mainly went to her because she was a musician. Sure. Originally, and uh, it had to be both of the choices. So I, I basically, what I did was I... Well, um, I just started not, let's say I have my B3 by Christmas. I'm not talking until then. <laughs> so I gave him the silent treatment from... You gave him an ultimatum, put your foot down, so to speak. Uh, uh, basically, I just did not speak to him for six months, basically. When you were 12? Yeah. Wow. That's hilarious. They were laughing for the first week. Yep. And uh, the second week... They were very not happy, pissed off, because I was turning around to speak to my sisters or anybody else, but I just didn't talk to them. Yeah, when they would address you, you still wouldn't respond? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I can't imagine. I I bet they were extremely frustrated. uh, And, well, I got a couple of whippings over that. Yeah. Back in those days, you could do that. That was appropriate. Uh, Right, right. (laughs) Or acceptable, uh, I guess. But, you know, after four months... And I still, they just ignore me, you know, they just, you know, because I, I still, I might have slipped a couple of times and said no or something like that. A yes, no, just but, a real quick yeah, thing. Yeah, a real quick thing. And that Christmas, I had a B3 in my garage. Nice. So you win. You won. I mean, well, <laughs> I, I, I did. Well, they knew uh, that I was real serious. serious obviously. Yeah. And when I got it, I immediately... Oh, during that time, uh, this is kind of the key thing that, that my, on my dad's side, you know, my, my dad right. really wasn't, he wasn't quite convinced that I was really serious about it. Why uh, do you I, think he thought that Well, because I, I tried to hitchhike to, to California. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, uh, I to mean, do what? What were you going to hitchhike uh, out there for? Just, just to Different leave. life? Yeah, you know, well, how old were you? San Francisco. Well, back then you could hitchhike everywhere. So they just pick up a twelve-year-old, is what you're saying. Back in those days, and it was were, okay. And well, that's what I thought. <laughs> I, I got to the Ohio Turnpike, and and the, uh, the patrol uh, folks there 
said, what are you doing out here? Because, I mean, I, I did it all the time around town or to Detroit, which right. was only an hour drive. But this was different, you know, turnpike, you know. Sure. And so they called my dad, he came to pick me up, and he said, you really want to do this? And I wasn't talking at that, that time. And that's when I said, yes. Did you tell him you were going to California, or did you just say no, yes? Well, I told the, the, the patrol Oh, okay, person, so that's everything. how he found out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I said, look, I'm not talking to my folks. I told the patrol. You gave him a heads up. Like, uh, yeah, he's so, like, hey, so if my dad's about he, to show up. I, I told the patrol guy exactly what my dad was going to ask. And I, mm. So I gave him. That's hilarious. That's great. So he was, he was uh, <laughs> but he finally gave up. And, uh, and then when I did go out, they kept me on an allowance. Uh, to make sure I was going to be okay until I was like 24. And I, of course, by then, you know, I've been all over. You were already well on the road. Yeah, but I let them do that just, you know. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> just to, to make sure they really understood that I was not, uh, I'd be okay. Right. And then I was living in San Francisco, uh, and I called my folks up and said, look, I need you to come out here. I'm, I bought you a ticket to fly out. It's on me. I flew them out first class to San Francisco. Went over to pick them up. I lived at the top of Twin Peaks. And, nice. And they hadn't been up there. They were like shaking from just the, you know, the view. The Beauty height. of it, everything. Yeah. Right. And uh, as soon as they walked in, I gave them a check for all the money they, they gave they, me over the years. Over the years? Yeah, nice. Everything. Yeah. That's amazing. That's I awesome. I kept track of it. That's great. Yeah. So you mentioned San Francisco. Uh, you having to play with Jerry Garcia. Uh, I did a couple shows with uh, when when, uh, Merle, band. when Merle Sanders couldn't make it. Right, Jerry Garcia band. Yeah, uh, that was that was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, back in those days, uh, there's a lot of bands that I kind of wouldn't sit in with. Uh, I know everybody up there, you know, from Steve uh, from uh, from Journey. Okay. Uh, Power, power! All those guys, Ezra Mohawk. Because you were there uh, roughly what what time well, well, in the sixties? Uh, well, I first moved there for about a year uh, in seventy, and then I went back home for a little bit because uh, just it was too overwhelming for me. <laughs> in what way? I don't. I, I don't. I'm not sure. It was just a lot of stuff going on. Uh, with, uh, the drug thing and, you know, the whole hate ashbury thing. That was yeah. definitely a lot of excess, you know, yeah, excessive. It was, it was, uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I moved back in 70, uh, 78, uh, 79, and I just I stayed for like 10 years. Back in the 70s, I, it was so overwhelming. Right. Really different for me from being from Ohio and coming from a, I won't say conservative family, but very... Uh, cautious. Sure. I, I got into everything but putting a needle on my arm because uh, I knew that that, that was... Point my, of no return. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, I, I saw friends and, and musicians even before that that, that, that OD'd and all kinds of weird stuff and that was totally not acceptable. But I did get my share of... Uh, uh, I wouldn't say that much of acid, but I mean, I did it um, well, yeah, I had a pretty good share of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, everything was not overly done. It was like natural sort of stuff, like, you know, plastic and not a lot of 
stuff cut into things and whatever that used to be. But I got over it. I was never hooked on anything. Right. Because uh, I was, you know, that's all what that did to folks. And I just didn't need to do that anymore after, you know, about a year of it. It was boring. Sure. And so, I, I could go to that feeling without doing it. Right. Uh, and so I let it go and never went back to it. And that's alcohol, too. You don't drink? No, I haven't. When was the last time you've had, had a drink? Uh, alcohol or beer, 40 years. Wow. Yeah. Because well, by then I was in a place where I, I had to make a decision at any given hour, uh, like a phone call, that it would affect myself or somebody I work with, their, their career. Sure. So I didn't want that responsibility of not being able to think straight. <laughs> Did you get caught up in the the disco era uh, as far as like cocaine? Did you? Uh, I mess was it up? I was around all of it, but by then I was totally over it. Right. I, mean, I used to do Studio Fifty Four and just have a soda. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. were you the only person in Studio Fifty Four just having absolutely, like a soda? Absolutely, absolutely. I can imagine. I've, I mean, I've heard that that place was a total shit show. Oh uh, yeah. Access yeah. to the nth degree, people just. Yeah, yeah. Were there people, you know, fucking next to you or right, three right. feet oh, away? Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was <laughs> everything they said it was and probably more. Right. But you know, it was uh it was more political to be seen there. Uh it, and most people my friends and stuff knew that it, you know, it wasn't You were never into that. That wasn't yeah, your thing. No, no, yeah. I'm more private than yeah. And I think that's kind of what happened as far as when I started playing out in concerts and I have to go to the bathroom or something. Right. Because I really didn't, I don't want to say like I didn't want to be there, but I, I've i seen, I saw so many artists that just got so... The Caught most, up in it. The more they got successful, it was just the, their whole humanity just was turned upside down. And, you know, and just the pressure of being an artist, the consistency of, uh, of having to stay on top of product yeah, to to be there, you know, was uh, something I didn't want to be involved with. I mean, music's attached to everything, everything, you know, everything that commercials, TV, movies, conference, you, you know, name you, it. You name it, you know. Uh, so I attach myself inside sure. a box of just one thing. Definitely lighter subject. <laughs> I want to talk <laughs> about. I've read that one of your influences that you really liked was Zappa, Frank Zappa. And just tell me a little bit what well, struck I, you about well, Zappa. I, I, I only met him briefly a couple times and jammed with him a couple times in a rehearsal space. Uh, but I, I met him back in 68, 69, I believe, uh, through George Duke, because George Duke played all kinds of you know, outside of Zappa's band, he was also a great jazz musician. Right, too. right. And he introduced me to Zappa in L.A. when I was out there doing a session, I believe. He said, this is Ike Stubblefield, and second thing out of Frank's mouth was Icky the Lethal Bloods. And I didn't know what What the hell is that? Yeah, well, <laughs> George was like, Dookie was kind of like, oh, Ike Stubblefield. But he knew he knew Frank, so right. Uh, and I didn't think about it any more than that. And I actually went off to the side and spelt my name and put up the mirror 
and it said Icky the Lethal Bloods looking at it through the mirror. Right. So he set my name backwards <laughs> like within <laughs> a hundredth of a second after I was introduced to him. He immediately just like yeah, that. Yeah, like, Icky mean, the Lethal Bloods. Now that's kind of Colonel Bruce, Bruce like Bruce esque. Uh, yeah, yeah, Bruce is ex. Yeah, it's sort of uh, he he was sort of out of this world, and he, I mean, his music was amazing to me, and he was a composer, rock. Well, well, well yeah, I, I was listening to the Mothers and stuff, you know, uh, a lot during my Motown days and everything else. That was one of the, I'd go from classical music at home right. to Frank Zappa. <laughs> totally different. Well, no, not but, really. But, but also, because everything's, it was synced, every yeah, time I listened to each one, there that's was true. something I hadn't heard or missed. Uh, uh, so I was really drawn to just the ingredients of not just the musicians that he put together to, to create all those flavors. Right. <laughs> I go back into right. cook, cooking again. And uh, uh, it's a great cook. I mean, just baker and everything as far as ingredients goes. Yeah. So, uh, and in actuality, if you think about it now, after uh, I said that, a lot of his music you can you can sort of see jazz and, and sense it and come yeah, a lot uh, of his uh, tracks and a lot of humor as well. Oh, he's very satirical. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of why I made the link about because he was—he just had a very unique sense of humor. Well, he's—he was also as a person very direct, straight shooter, straight shooter, and crap. bullshit from anybody, right, right, right. right, right. And, and let you know straight away if he felt that's yeah. And uh, so, and he was—he did all that being sober. Like, that's just who he was, right? Being exactly. bold and direct. Yeah, yeah. The the most psychedelic thing, because I've read he never really did drugs, but he purposefully kept himself up for seven days just to start see what it would do and hallucinate. Well, well, it was the same thing as naturally, you know. Yeah. Uh, as far as mentally getting, you know, this clear head, uh, being in control of being free. Right. And that's the ticket. You, you can be free and take drugs or and and have no idea. <laughs> right, right. What the what, hell just happened? Right, what's all that going stuff. On. If you're in control of it, then you can act normal and still go out there. And Steve Jobs did acid. Oh yeah, yeah. Lots I mean, of lots, lots, lots of major like genius type folks. Yeah, did all kinds of things like that. But they were in control of how to use it. They didn't do it for a party. It's set and <clears throat> excuse me. It's set and setting, as I say. You know. Yeah, right. Right. In regards to kind of the the jam band scene these days, I mean, you've played with Derek Trucks, Susan Tedeschi. You're good friends with them, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the whole Trucks family, actually. Dwayne, uh, uh, when he was, I guess, in, uh, getting ready to graduate high school, uh, I had Bernard Purdy come down a couple of times, and uh, I asked Dwayne, uh, I said, because he was coming over to Atlanta a lot right when he was in, getting ready to finish high school. And, and I, I told Chris, his dad, I said, well, if he graduates, I'll give him a, a graduation gift. And so he did. And I had Bernard Purdy come down to Atlanta and gave him a one-on-one -on -one drum lesson nice. for two hours. And he never forgot that. It was like, real, he was so excited about it. But, you know... Uh, Colonel Bruce, 
you know, really helped him a lot as well. Bruce's band. Uh, but he's already naturally talented. Right. Yeah. Uh, it was, <clears throat> I think, between Bruce and I and a few other people who were just basically trying to get more information, colors and shapes. Sure. And, and you know, it, well, uh, Dwayne was already into, you know, jazz. Yeah, his style and his feel was already there. Yeah, he's a good, good kid. Yeah, no, I think he's a great drummer for sure. Um, he's with Panic now. Of right? course, yeah. yeah. He's done an amazing job since he's joined he Joined end of 2013. Uh, yeah, him and Jimmy uh, play well together. <laughs> very well. Uh, so, you know, obviously, you're friends with Jimmy Herring. Oh, yeah, I'm on all of his solo records. Which I've listened to or you played before we started this. They're, they're pretty amazing. I mean... It's just cool to, it's very interesting how you and Jimmy can play all sorts of different types of, it's not just widespread panic or Jimmy's not boxed in, you're not boxed into one specific type of, or genre of music. And I've always thought that was an amazing talent and and I'd love to listen to it. It's fun. It's good stuff. Another one that you met at a young age. Like, did you meet Derek Trucks as well? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, yeah. Cause he he got in the scene, of course, when he was like twelve. Uh, sure, of course, yeah. He was virtuoso. Uh, and then, how long have you? I mean, did you know Warren Haynes? How did you get start playing with the Mule? Uh, I think it was actually at a festival. I think it was uh, with the Cold Talkers. Uh, they were playing on another stage or something. And uh, I, I went backstage with Bruce, Colonel Bruce, to a government meal. And I met Warren then. But I didn't actually play that, that show or sit in. Right. Uh, and I met Danny, and Danny and I knew a lot of the same people up, up in New York from back in the day. So Danny and I kind of connected. <clears throat> you and Danny Lewis? Yeah, Danny Lewis. And... I think it was Georgia Theater. Uh, I went over and they called. Actually, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, Government Meal that time. Uh, it was Warning Band. Band, right? With Terrence Higgins from New Orleans on drums, which I played with all the time. So I think that was the first time I played with Warren without Meal. I've always been a guest with them anytime I'm around. So yeah, that's uh, it's one of my favorite bands. Yeah, one of mine too. Deal, yeah. So as far- I think, I think basically I like them a lot because you never know what they're going to play. They're so unpredictable. Um, I saw go. them last week. They yeah. were playing Pink, like I've heard Pink Floyd. Uh, yeah, yeah. The BB King. Um, you just yeah, yeah, yeah. And Van Morrison. They covered a Van Morrison. And that's kind of how how I think. So right. And you've done that in the past. Oh yeah, yeah. Those yeah. for TV shows and yeah, uh, movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've gotten Grammys. Most of my Grammys are from that. How many Grammys do you have? Uh, I was over the first one, but six. <laughs> <laughs> I have six, but they're all from 
from uh, like Georgia or Moroda, uh, from, um, uh, from film stuff. Right. Uh, mostly stuff from out in California. Uh, did the, all the music for Phonics, won an award, something. It really wasn't that hard. Uh, Top Gun was the Georgia Moroda. You most, did that? You... Uh, I played keys on most of that. Oh, wow. Yeah. The fun fact. Uh, yeah, so I got actually a Grammy for that. They won an Oscar as well. But uh, I didn't get an Oscar for it. Cause you didn't it, get it, one? It, it didn't go that far into the, the mix. Come on. But I, I did get three, <laughs> three of the Grammys for films, getting songs and movies. And I'm, I'm not, I don't like to be in the public eye. Yeah, that goes back yeah, to uh, what you were saying yeah, earlier, I, even know, as a kid. And when I start getting in that, I disappear. I switch over and do jazz or, right. or you know. It, it's just, I have to sing about uh, being normal. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I got tons of people out there that are very good at what they do, uh, that I'm not good at, and that's the whole trick of staying consistent. Sure. Uh, as to know what you're not good at and, you know. Know your strengths and, yeah, and stick, yeah. stick with it. That, that way you don't have to jeopardize your integrity. You know, if it's something that you don't like doing or feel ashamed to do, there's other people out there that know. Right. That that's what they're about. One last thing I did want to talk to you about or sparked my interest was uh, Quincy Jones. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, tell me a little bit about that. You composed some, was it television, mute movies? Uh, I met Quincy through an old friend of mine. Uh, it was like my stepdad-ish uh, in Palm Springs, Harold Robbins, who wrote uh, the Betsy, Carverbagger, and stuff like that. Uh, and Harold kind of helped Quincy when he was in his struggling days back in the early 50s. So he introduced me to Quincy. Um, I called over the phone, and Quincy said, if you're over in L.A., which, you know, was only an hour and a half away, and I used to go in for sessions anyway. <clears throat> he said, stop by. You can have a chat. Right. And all this was because of Harold, you know, you know, he kind of helped him out and over the years, and they were pretty close in the relationship. And uh, so I, I went over to Quincy's studio, and he's in a session. And he said, come on in. You know, and I just watched and listened to what he was doing. And, and uh, he said all the things to me that I kind of grew up knowing about, you know, you can't learn unless you listen. Feel it or try. Or, yeah. yeah. You can't learn anything by talking. You learn by listening. And uh, just his placement with the way he produced and things like that. So we hung out quite a bit in the studio, jammed a little bit, did some jazz stuff. He showed me some chords. Oh, nice. Uh, some other fingering ways of doing stuff. Quincy helped me with uh, the string arrangement on a song off my uh, two CDs ago, uh, Old Souls on New Shoes. And the song was uh, called Love Dance. Uh, it's been covered by a million people. I think Nancy Wilson did a version so I, I thought, well, you know, this is perfect song for Quincy because uh, I want that kind of lush, 
soulful but still cleverly uh, arranged. Right. Uh, well, Quincy does. He's famous for that. It being a, a cover song that everybody pretty much familiar with in the jazz scene. Uh, so I asked him to, if he had time to do that, and he sent it back like two days later. Yeah, he apparently has an amazing work and, ethic, just yeah, yeah, driven. Yeah, and so it uh, worked out great. It's got that Quincy touch to it. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's amazing. You truly have played all with all types of great musicians and had a pretty uh, fun life. I'm kind of always excited about just different ingredients and I never have that concept of good or bad players they're all different you know uh, just because they're famous or I've been playing a thousand years uh, they just do what they do and it's like ingredients that's like salt pepper flour eggs sure you know you can do quite a bit with and pretty generic but it's also exciting to hear somebody that's hasn't been playing that long. Kids and just the whole imagery and the way, you know, they're not tainted with having to be a product and stay consistent with what they're known for. Right. So that never ends as far as learning and, uh, and enjoying what I do. From such an early age, he found music and he never let go of it. And it became the true essence of who he was as a person and how he wanted to share and interact with both his craft and talent as an artist with music and playing. He, he, he'll, he describes that uh, he did not know how to read music um, and a lot of musicians, but he just totally went with shapes and sounds and, and colors and what he had in his mind. He had, it just, it, I, it's very fascinating. He had this picture perfect ear for tones and sounds and uh, he never let go of it. And that gave me a true shot in the arm and an inspiration of somebody when they find a passion you grab it and you never fucking let go of it. You know, I love his story. He took his craft on stage. He was very focused. I was exposed to this both when I met him uh, the first time before he went on stage at Antones. He went <laughs> from being this very affable guy and he just looked at his watch, finished his cigarette, and he said, look, Follow up with me. I gotta go. Uh, I'm about to go on 15. And I said, oh, you're right. It's great meeting you. I'll definitely call you. Thank you so much. And then I watched him and he was like, uh, his laser point precision on getting up and performing, it just, I was fascinated by the way he could, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but yeah, he just, sometimes he wouldn't even know what the hell was, what they were playing, or he wouldn't be told. Um, it was all just an instinctual, visceral response. After the interview, Ike and I slowly became friends. He saw something in me. It wasn't just about music. 
He knew that podcasts like his music are products that require work. Ike and I built a friendship over the course of the past two and a half years. His passing was just one example of the unconventional ways he teaches and inspires people. After recording the podcast with Ike, the pandemic and the loss of my mom put my launch plans on hold. I will always be grateful to Ike for his legacy to music, but most importantly, for his personal inspiration. Ike is with me every day in the colors and shapes of this world to remind me that it is never too late to pursue my passion. Thank you, Ike, and all of the listeners out there for being part of this journey of Neurons to Nirvana.